This is 89.9 WWNO. I'm Janae Pierre, and it's time for All Things New Orleans. On today's show, we'll give you all the details about a bus ride to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Then, Jessica Rosegard discusses a recent report on an increase in women running for political office. And later, we'll share another story from Bring Your Own, a live storytelling series. That's all coming up on All Things New Orleans. Stay with us. Last month, the Equal Justice Initiative opened the doors to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. The site is the nation's first memorial dedicated to the legacy of enslaved Black people, people terrorized by lynching, and Jim Crow. Here in New Orleans, two organizations are partnering to organize a trip to visit the National Lynching Memorial. Joining me now is Dee Dee Green with Peace by Peace NOLA and Ernest Johnson with Ubuntu Village. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Let's start with the backstory of how this memorial came to be, um, because it would be remiss of us not to mention the work of the Equal Justice Initiative. Yes, it's very important to recognize the work of the Equal Justice Network and the work that Mr. Brian Stevenson has done over the years to recognize the importance of the heroic events that took place across this nation and to kind of bring it together with where it's at today around mass incarceration and the importance of our history to help us understand and give us the opportunity to reflect and to mourn um, those lynchings that took place in our communities across America. And you mentioned the heroic acts of those African-American individuals back then, but they were also heroic and horrific acts, right? Yes. And those acts, you know, it brings to mind that how, you know, society set aside and just watched those, the brutality that existed and how that we are still in existing. I think there's an internal condition among our people that exists today from those acts. Now, before working on this national memorial, the Equal Justice Initiative put out a report called Lynching in America, Confronting the Legacy of Racial Terror. And I'm just curious if either of you read through that report prior to organizing the trip, because the report mentions the lynching of at least 4,400 black people between 1877 and 1950. And I can't help but wonder how many of those lynchings happened here in Louisiana. I'm not aware of the numbers um, in Louisiana necessarily, but um, the memorial certainly um, helps us to uh, remember the legacy of racial terror that's taken place in this country, particularly in the South. And um, I think it's important for our communities to understand that uh, when we think about Trayvon Martin and his and his murder in 2012, and we think about as far back as Rodney King, that uh, in 1991, that um, state-sanctioned violence, police brutality, lynchings, and their legacy um, have been a part of our history since we've been brought to this country as slaves. You all have organized a quick turnaround trip for folks to visit the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Go ahead and give us a rundown of the itinerary. So the itinerary is that we'll be departing on June the 8th at 8.30 a.m., we will make a stop in Mobile, Alabama, halfway through the trip. Um, we're anticipating 
on getting to Montgomery sometime between the hours of 2 and 3. And at that time, we will visit the Southern Poverty Law Museum. And then Saturday morning, upon checking out of the hotel, we will visit the Peace and Justice Museum and Memorial for um, 3 to four hours between both um, the memorial and the museum, and we would depart from Montgomery that evening, anticipating to get home sometime in that night between the hours of 9 and 10. And it sounds like three to four hours is just enough time. I know this memorial is more than four acres. Yes. We're going in two different groups, so we anticipate to, you know, give people opportunity to walk in and suck in. We understand that it can be an emotional ride, so we want people to take their time. And just if you can identify and trace, in particular, the history of those who have been lynched in Louisiana because of our condition and the lost history that we have, we may be able to identify with some people we know, so we want to capture that and um document that, that history so that we're able to bring it back to the community and integrate it in a way that it makes a connection. Why was it so important for your two organizations in particular to offer this trip to the New Orleans community? Well, for Piece by Piece, we our work is primarily uh, with young people. We offer um, Saturday programming and uh, a summer camp where we teach young people uh, methods of sustainability, planning, harvesting, composting. Within that curriculum, we try to provide Afrocentric learning, some history um, as well, um, something that sort of challenges traditional education. So an opportunity to visit the memorial, again, in remembrance of the many lives that were lost to racial terror, is important for young people to understand, as I said before, that there's a legacy to the type of violence we're seeing right now that is perpetrated against our communities. So it's, it's just really important for piece by piece to provide these types of opportunities when they become available. And we often partner with Mbutu Village on many events. So we just, we thought this was an incredible opportunity and wanted to take as many um, young people and families from, from our community as possible. And folks can actually sponsor a young person to go on this trip, right? That's correct. I'd like to end by giving you, uh, Mr. Johnson, an opportunity to tell us about the work that you do with Ubuntu Village. So at Ubuntu Village, NOLA, our primary work is around young people who are impacted by incarceration in the juvenile justice system. So we feel like at that point it's a critical stage that we turn young people's lives around. Um, We work around transformative leadership and give young people economic opportunities so that they can sustain themselves in life and not be caught up in sort of the work that, you know, Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative talks about, about mass incarceration. That We don't want kids to be in this cycle, right, because it's detrimental to the entire family. So holistically, we try to bring an approach that we bring the family, the parents and the kids in and say, look, we want to educate you about how this system works. So it was important to, for us to bring young people and their families to get the historical content of what has happened in the past and what is happening in the present in order for you to break this cycle of, in particular, African-American young men being entangled in a juvenile justice system, you have to know your history. So that's part of the work we do at um, Obutu Village, is just trying to transform how the juvenile justice system operates with young people and how they treat young people, because there's a myth that young people can make decisions like adults. And, you know, we all made mistakes, but not on a, I think, on a magnitude that we kind of see now that we kind of look at it in the lens that these kids 
kids are so bad, but they're young people, and we want to give them opportunities to transform their life. That was Ernest Johnson with Ubuntu Village and D.D. Green with Peace by Peace NOLA. Thanks for joining me today. Thank, Thank you, you for, for having, having us. us. To learn more about the Ubuntu trip to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, visit ubuntuvillagenola.org. A new Tulane University report assessing equity in political representation in New Orleans reveals that more women are running for and being elected to political office in the city since Hurricane Katrina. WWNO's Jessica Rosegard sat down with the report's author, Tulane political science professor Miria Holman, to discuss the significance of the report's findings. Miria, your report takes a look at who has held office in city government and how representation has changed over time, particularly for women and people of color. Why did you decide to research and publish this report, and why is this data important? One of the primary interests of mine in looking at this information was the election of LaToya Cantrell as our first woman mayor in New Orleans in 300 years. So both our tricentennial and this really momentous event that we have happening at the same time as the tricentennial. And I was very interested in whether or not she was sort of the exception to the rule or an example of a changing trend in who's running for local office. And so I, uh, along with Chloe Schwanz, who's my co-author on it, we went back in time and looked at who has run for office uh, for the city council and mayor, and then also who has been elected to office, looking primarily at the pre-Katrina period and then the post-Katrina period. And so we have data back to 1986, so a sort of comparison set of data uh, for pre- and post-Katrina. For 40 years, New Orleans mayors were black males, and while African-American representation in government is important, female African-American representation is particularly important as studies show black women are hit hardest by, you know, areas of poverty and income inequality. So what do you think the election and inauguration of Latoya Cantrell means for the city of New Orleans in those areas? That's a great question. Uh, We see that in New Orleans, black women have higher poverty rates. They uh, have more robust challenges associated with access to health care. They're housing issues in New Orleans have hit black women particularly hard. And at the same time, we know that representation does matter. So having somebody that has experienced some of the issues associated with racism and sexism uh, in New Orleans, having somebody that identifies with as a black woman and, and with the challenges that black women face in our communities is really important. And your report also mentions the city council and the shift now that we, for the first time, have a majority women and people of color on the council and how that sort of has a multiplying effect on legislation. Yeah, so we right now have the most diverse city council that we've ever had in terms of race and gender. And not just uh, in terms of uh, black people holding office, but we have our first uh, Hispanic woman on the city council and our first Asian woman on the city council. So it's a really 
really diversity council, one of the most diversity councils in the United States, really, if we're looking at how representative the city council is demographically of the city overall. And we also have on the city council a couple of advocates for that have a proven track record for really caring about issues that are important to women and people of color. So uh, Helena Moreno has a really impressive track record in the state legislature of working on domestic violence legislation, for example, and uh, pursuing equal pay legislation and her move from the city from the state legislature to the city council I think is really interesting because it shows us that she thinks that she's going to be able to get stuff done for women as a city council member and so you know having people like that on the city council and having majority women and majority people of color uh, we have the possibility of seeing some really exciting policy changes why is this timing particularly post Katrina important one of the interesting things that we see post-Katrina is that community activists had an opportunity to move from engaging in community work uh, that was really motivated by challenges in the city post-Katrina to then being elected to, to office. And LaToya Cantrell is a really good example of this, right? She starts out as a community activist in, in Broadmoor and, and defending her community against some of the challenges post-Katrina and then gets elected to the city council and then moves on to the mayor. And both Helena Moreno and Cindy Wynn are examples of people that have emerged out of sort of these non-traditional paths to political office. Cindy Wynn, again, is this community activist that get, got involved in working in New Orleans East and organizing around community issues there and has been able to propel that into uh, elected position. That's not necessarily something that we saw in New Orleans pre-Katrina, that most people that were elected to particularly city council pre-Katrina in New Orleans came out of a very traditional path to political office. Being a lawyer or a business person, having the right connections in the community, being connected to a few community organizations, but essentially it was about who you knew that had money and power, and now it's much more about who you know in terms of community activism. And when you mention these women in particular, you are talking about minority mm -hmm. women um, who, as we've been talking about, haven't had such a role in politics. So that grassroots opportunity really opened a door for them in that sense. Yeah, in many ways, uh, Katrina offered an interruption to the normal way that we did politics in the city. Now, it doesn't mean that things aren't the same in a lot of ways, but it did offer these women in particular, an opportunity to take an alternative path to being elected to political office. And one of the exciting things I think about, for example, Cindy Wynn's win in the city council is that it what it doesn't look like it was this one-time thing of, okay, well, you were here post-Katrina and you were successful at that point and you got this one bump and now we're going to go back to the business of doing things the way they were. Instead, these community organizations have provided this really robust opportunity for women to gain political skills and run for office and win political office. Muriel Holman, Doctor of Political Science at Tulane University, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Minus, 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 minus,
And we're back with more BYO. This story was told on May 23rd in the New Orleans Sculpture Garden and later produced by Lane Kaplan-Levinson. The theme of the evening was A Queen Within, and here, Cole Williams talks of coming from a private family and learning how to find and speak her truth. My mother is Jamaican. She is one of Jamaica West Indies. She's one of 11 children, and she moved here. One year later, she met my father. Next year, married him. Next year, she had me, so she was on her own. So she's my inspiration. <laughs> and uh, my parents were together for about 14 years, and I was super close to my father. He's, he's born in America, he's born in Brooklyn. But uh, they divorced when I was 14, and at that point, I lost my best friend. I was daddy's little girl. So I'm an only child. I have a really big extended family, but my close family is really personal. And um, sometimes I'm like what they call Caribbean private. I'm not just private, I'm Caribbean private. Anybody that knows Jamaican people or Trinidadian people, we can keep a secret. So I came from a family with like a lot of secrets. You just didn't show what was going on. You put on the good face. You put on the good shoes, you put on your outfit, you always had to be dressed, and like my mom says, put on your lipstick, smile, and go out there and do it. But it covers a lot of things. And um, it's something really interesting that happened, and I don't know if anybody's experienced this, but when you move to a new place with no family, like I have no blood relatives here, I just like said, I'm jumping in the car, I'm gonna bring my cat down here, and I'm gonna move, and I'm gonna just like sing. And um, it was cool for like the first year, because I was just partying. And then the second year, it's like reality set in, and I just realized, oh, like I have these issues, and I have like that issue, and I thought I got over that thing. And, and then by the third year, I'm like, am I going crazy? And um, I'm fiery. You know, I have a subtle fire. And um, I always use it in my performance, so I, I just testify when I sing. But in my day-to-day, -day, I'm just really, just really even-keeled. But I knew that there was this thing burning up in me. I said, uh, I'm going to direct this thing that I realized was anger at the people that I'm angry at, my father and my father's wife. So let me go back a little bit more. So my parents divorced, my father married again, and I was basically cut out of that part of their life. So I pretty much kind of had a father on the phone, but I didn't have a father physically. So the role that he served for me in my life, it just disappeared, dissipated, and I just didn't know what happened. I didn't have the tools to understand it. And um, I realized that, especially being in New Orleans, where like it's such a big community. And I'm like, everybody has their family, and they got their daddy. Where's my daddy? <laughs> and um, so I started to ask, and I went to my father's wife first. And I picked up the phone one evening when I felt this fire and I said, um, she said hello. And I said, let me tell you why you're a nasty <laughs> <laughs> And she said, okay, thank you for telling me this. And let's, <laughs> no, no, no. And it just like, uh, <laughs> it was good. <laughs> Like, it was really good, and it was back and forth, and you know, names were, were, were called, she called me manipulative, <laughs> she called me ghetto, you know, we, we just went, went in for each other, but I was so happy. I found my voice, I said what I wanted to say to the person I wanted to say it to, 
I got the reaction that I, I pretty much thought I would get. I thought I would get back hate. And um, I basically not only discovered my voice, but I made everybody else accountable for their voices too. And so the music that I started to sing was different. And um, the way that I sang my music was different because I had this truth. And like I had this testimony, you know, that I'm working through some stuff, but I'm okay. And I've sort of taken the role of father away from my physical father right now, just for a temporary time. But I've put it into the hands of like my spiritual father. So if you believe in God, whatever you want to call him, I'm going back to my religion and I really found my religion. And um, it's really difficult. You know, sometimes I sing and I just want to cry. Sometimes I sing and I feel like I'm a little girl again. Um, and then I did this other thing that's really new for Caribbean private people. I decided to seek a real therapist so I can really have somebody to talk to so that I don't have to bore my mother with my <laughs> all the time when I'm going through it and she can't really do anything. She's just listening. She's going through her own stuff. She's like, this man left me. Like, <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> so I, I just want to close out by sharing from a place that I feel really authentic with my, my singing. And this is a song that I grew up on. My father gave me this song. He shared it with me. And I want to share it with you guys. And this is a song I sing during my shows, but it, it uplifts me right now. Pass me not, O oh gentle Savior. Why don't you hear my humble, my humble cry? Oh, why long earth is thou art called only? I sing that to myself. I sing that to you, but really I sing that to my father and to the healing relationship. Thank you so much, ladies, for inviting me. Pass me not, oh gentle Savior. My humble cry. What honor does thou calling? That BYO was in partnership with the New Orleans Museum of Art. Hear more stories at bringyourownstories.com.
And that's it for this week's edition of All Things New Orleans. I'm Janae Pierre. Visit our website to check out previous shows and be sure to catch us next week right here on 89.9 WWNO New Orleans and 90.5 KTLN Thibodeau Homer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.